Well, welcome this morning. I'm glad that you're here uh, again. As they said earlier, my name is Ty, and uh, I've been here at Fredonia for a long time and also at SFA for a long time as a professor. And uh, I've also maybe been in your seat at one time before in my life as I am an alum from the undergraduate program at SFA as well. So, uh, you know, Axum Jacks, right? So uh, my wife was, uh, we're, we're communication professors. My wife was asking me, what's your attention strategy going to be? And she started going over all these things about, you know, what you learn when you take a speech class. And I was, I was a little concerned. I was like, uh, well, you know, I'm reading the Bible, maybe, you know. So maybe a professor should even know a little bit more than that. But I couldn't help but think that as we were getting into what we're going to read today that we really needed to just dig in and just hit the ground running, so to say. I could tell you a bunch of fun stories because I have four little boys that are all fun and all full of energy and an incredibly beautiful wife, and so there's all kinds of cool stories I could tell you. But uh, we're going to go into uh, Scripture, so if you would, turn to Psalm 16. Uh, that's where we're at today, and where I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to break it down and, and talk about each aspect of this particular psalm. And there's so many different ways that you could take this psalm, directions that you can take this psalm if you ever study it on your own, uh, and, and I want to kind of provide one of those arches today, so let's just begin Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion. And my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. And I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a beautiful psalm as you read it. It really provides you this sense of you are God's. If you are truly his child, you are in him, you know him, as you read this, you're just constantly berated, if you would, with the language of David and how God captures us and loves us deeply and holds us steadfast with his right hand and that he secures us and that he has a plan for us and that plan's going to happen. And the good news is this is that what he has planned for his children is always good, right? And so as we read this psalm, we see that. But I want to 
in giving you some reference here scripturally and some context, if you would, an overarching view of this psalm and seeing what's going on. Number one, obviously, as it acknowledges here in your Bibles, probably even at the beginning, that this is written by David, who we obviously know is uh, not only the first king uh, that is truly the king of Israel in the sense that God has placed that person in uh, that particular role, right? So we know that Saul uh, was there, but Saul was uh, a response by the people of God begging for a king to be similar to the nations around them, right? Because they did not have a king prior to Saul. And so as a result of that, it's almost as though God just goes, fine, here you go. And what we know about Saul is that his heart uh, continually drifted from God. So as, as he was first stepping into his role as king, it was closer, if you would, to God than by the time that he left his uh, reign as king. We also know during the time of his reign as king that Samuel goes to David's father's house, goes through all of his brothers, ends up at the very last one, the youngest one, David, and tells him that he will be king, anoints him. And then there's a several year period in which then David is basically defeating Goliath. And then there's a several year period before he ever comes king. So there's a waiting period between the time that he's actually ordained and the time that he actually becomes king. During that time, all kinds of situations happen, not only the, the story that we all know so well with Goliath, but also the fact that Saul would pursue him uh, in order to actually take his life. We also know that Saul's son, Jonathan, and David were close friends. But one of the things that we know about Saul is that Saul was the guy that would throw the spear first. He would draw the sword. He would throw the spear. He was the warrior guy. David was the guy that wrote poems to God and wrote songs to God and had a heart for God. And also the guy that God said, of him is a man after my own heart. So there's a very different posture in which David takes life as in which Paul takes life. Uh, so one, obviously, let's get to, let's get to the fight. You're going to go against me. I'm going to go against you. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get you right. I'm going to get revenge if necessary to one who uh, paused a lot, sought God, dug down deep, asked God for help before reaching out and doing things on his own. We know that he sinned. He made some serious mistakes. Uh, Not only did he commit adultery, but we also know that he had the husband of that woman, Bathsheba, killed uh, by placing him at the front line of his army. So we know that he's not a perfect guy. But we also know this, is that God made this incredible promise to David. And he said this, he said that someone from your line, a son of you, will become the one true king. So someone other than you will become really the true David. Imagine God telling you that. 
So it would be like God telling me, tie someone other than you the one true tie. Okay, is it, pause, right? Going, okay, I don't say, but it's, it's, it's very similar in the sense of Adam, right? So we see the reflection, and, and Paul uses this metaphor as well in describing Christ, that he is the true Adam, right? He is the better Adam. And in the same way, Christ is the true and better David. So one of the things that we can see in this psalm, and this isn't, I'm not the only person that has given you this comparison. Peter and Paul did it as well. So in Acts 2 and in Acts 13, we see this psalm referenced. And it's referenced in describing exactly what Christ went through as he took on the penalty of our sin and defeated sin and death, only to raise again and call us to be his own. And we're going to see that as I begin to break down this psalm. So let's begin. Now that uh, we've gone over the psalm, I've given you some background let me just start with the first few verses here. We're going to start with verse 1 through 5, and that will come up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bibles with you. But let's read through that again, and as I read through it, I'm going to make comments so you can follow along with me. The first thing that I want to mention here is the very first word that comes up in the psalm. So in this mictum, which is a poem of David... The first word, preserve, means something very significant here. It actually refers to the name, a name of God. One of the names of God is preserver of men or watcher of man. And we see this in several places in the Psalms, and you can write these down if you want to. I'm not going to cite them, but Psalm 12, 7 Psalm 25:20 we see this same kind of language but we also see it in Job 7:20 and I want you to look at that with me just a second it says if i sin what do i do to you you watcher of mankind that's the phrase so watcher of mankind also could be preserver of mankind guardian of mankind It's the same word or same language there. So at the beginning of this psalm, and I'm going to go ahead and finish that verse. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Of course, this is Job talking to God. We know that God called Job out to experience something like no other at that point in biblical history that is in our purview of how Job is written has experienced, right? So we, we kind of see this image that Satan comes and and is kind of talking to God and, and says, "Let, let, let me have him. Right. And there's no one that can overcome my temptation. And God, of course, says Job, he's the righteous one. He will overcome it. And we know that he does all of the, things that he loses everything, literally everything. His friends turn on him. He loses his family uh, to death. His wife turns on him. He becomes sick with leprosy. 
So we see that in him turning to God, that here is an acknowledgement, even early on in the book of Job, that God is the guardian or the preserver or watcher of mankind. It is God who ordains our life. And it is God who sets up our portion. And we're going to see that language as we continually go through this psalm, right? So if you look there, then it, so it says, In preserving me, the preserver or watcher or guardian of mankind, he's saying, Oh God, so this is you. For in you, and that's always key, that phrase, in you. So to be in someone is to be in communion with them. So it is to have a relationship with them, to be of one's family. Think it that way. So you're in my family. You're my kid. So that means you are in me. You're part of me. Okay? So that is the acknowledgement here. So it's in that relationship, I take refuge. So in communion with you, I find refuge. Why? Because you are the guardian of mankind. You preserve me. You set my steps. So think like Proverbs, right? So uh, that the word of God is like a lamp, right? Or a light to our path. If we lean not on our own understanding, but trust in him, he will make our path straight. So he is the guardian, the watcher, the preserver of our steps, right? And because I recognize God's sovereignty is what that's referring to, I can take refuge in him. That means I can essentially say this, I know that I'm going to be taken care of regardless of what happens. So what we see as we enter in in this psalm is really a theology of suffering. An acknowledgement that if I suffer, if I lose everything, I'm willing to do that if it is your portion for me, O oh God, for your glory. And so he starts off the psalm by recognizing this. This is very typical of psalms. A lot of times in the first verse or two that the psalmist will kind of write this key phrase, write this key line that, that really is a glimpse of what's going to be ultimately communicated throughout the poem or the song. Okay? So he goes in to say also, I say to the Lord, in verse 2 of 16, you are my Lord. So you are my God. And of course, we know that is Yahweh. I am that I am. So you are my am that I am. You are my identity. You are my everything. You are the maker of me. You are my father. Okay. I have no good apart from you. So you, father, guardian of my life. See the parental language there? Such a fun thing to say on Father's Day, right? But this language of a father, a guardian over his children, over his flock, a shepherd over his flock, watching over, and the 
person, the child, recognizing that I am nothing. I do not have your name. I do not have your inheritance. I do not have, then, your righteousness, your salvation, unless I am in you. So therefore, God, because you are the provider of everything, you are my good father, then I say, no good happens to me unless you design it. And I am not good within myself because everything I am has to be grounded in you. So there's this acknowledgement of that. Now, obviously, David is saying this. How does this relate to Christ may be a question. If we're kind of seeing this parallel of here's David, but we're looking at the better David or the good David in Christ, how might this be Christ? And I want you to look at Isaiah 49, 7 through 8. In Isaiah 49, 7 through 8, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before, uh, excuse me, because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So there's that chosen language that I'm your guardian, I'm the watcher of you, Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Notice that language there. Give you as a covenant to the people. Right? To establish the land and to apportion the desolate heritages. So what we know of Christ is that by being in Christ, so to be saved, to be accept the gospel, believe the gospel in faith, and walk through faith in the guardianship of God whenever we do that. So we know that it is a result of the fact that Christ did it before us. And so as Christ walked the earth, he continually acknowledged that his goodness, his deity, in other words, also his obedience, all came from God. He would frequently say it like this, I came to speak the will of my Father. So it's, it's more an acknowledgement of who he is the ambassador for than it is him. Now, does Christ have the position to formally say, I am God? Obviously. But look at what Christ did. While he is God, he counted it gain for us to humble himself and make himself in the form of a man and walk this earth so that he could live the perfect life, die the death that we deserve, defeat that death through the resurrection and invite us into a relationship and give us the promise of the hope that is in Christ. And that is to be in his presence face to face one day. Praise God. And that that gospel could happen 
and to become alive through Christ is an amazing thing. So one of the things that we're seeing then is as we kind of give this imagery of the previous David and here is the true David and we're looking at that, we have to acknowledge this, is that Christ took this position upon himself of humility. When the king would make himself a pauper and walk around the people as the people and take their penalty that they deserve, when he's the king, it's an incredible stance of humility. And so what we see in this imagery, of course, of prophecy that is coming out of Psalm 16 about Christ is that he would be a man of humility and that he would constantly acknowledge that everything in him that is good and every miracle of him and every word that he speaks is in obedience to the Father, the watcher of mankind. So we see that parallel that is constantly moving forward there. It's pretty cool imagery to see that happening. And this is exactly what Peter and Paul were trying to uh, preach when they were preaching in Acts as they referenced the psalm. Right? They were trying to show people how God had this destiny for Christ, right? This portion we use that word as well, for Christ, and that portion would be your salvation, right? So let's go on to look at verse 3, and it says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So here we see there is an acknowledgement. Once again, what kind of man being the king of all men looks to other people lower than him and counts them as equal. That's what's going on here. So once again, we see this action of humility that one would walk amongst when one is at a higher level, obviously, in society, would, would walk amongst the people and be as a person like they are, and would be similar. So for the saints of land, they're excellent ones. These are good people. They are saints because of you, right? You're the one that directs the portion, Father. I am here as your son, but to do your will. Think of it that way, right? So that's the language. Doesn't that begin to remind you of the prayer that Christ prayed in Gethsemane? You know, if you look at that, one of the things that you began to see is that as he prayed that, he began to say, Father, you know, forgive them, be with them, guard them, take them, prepare them a place, make sure that they're going to be okay. He places this incredible priority on the people. That is an act of humility, an act of compassion, and a design of love. It's the love of the Father coming through the Son. Right? 
So as we go on, it, it goes into verse 4, and we have kind of a switch. And we think, wow, this is weird. It just throws this in here, right? And, and psalms often do that. Uh, so as you read through the psalm, you'll be reading through psalms. It's real pretty language. You're feeling all happy and good, and then all of a sudden it says, and may you strike my enemies on the head and slaughter them, right? And you're like, um, but this doesn't seem to go with what I'm, the spirit or posture that I'm in right now. But it, here, here it goes, right? So it often kind of happens like that. Something abrupt will change in this psalm and change. And so we see that in verse 4. And it says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So it's kind of like here, all of a sudden we've shifted into Proverbs. So it's, it's like we've shifted into that wisdom literature that we see often in Proverbs, and it gives these kind of points. And then it goes on to say, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take the names on my lips. So I, ultimately what that's saying is I'm not going to participate in the acts of worship that they participate in. I'm not going to say the names of their gods and proclaim the names of their gods and live by the names of their God. I'm not going to make sacrifices to the names of their gods. So there's this acknowledgement of this, but there is a principle that is really unique here that I want to mention. Matthew Henry uh, so a, a great biblical scholar who you can find his commentary out there uh, has written commentary on the thing. But Charles, I was reading some uh, the Treasury of David, which was written by Charles Spurgeon. Actually, I think it came out of a bunch of his sermons. But uh, it, it's I was reading that, and he referenced Matthew Henry, and so I thought this was a really good quote. So I had to rob it off of Charles Spurgeon, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but. I'm still giving credence to who, who said it, right? Matthew Henry. It says, they that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. When we name the name of other gods, when we follow fast after other gods, when we, like it says here, the sorrows of those that run after, pursue, worship other gods, that is idolatry. And whenever we participate in idolatry, making another God before the one true God in our life, which can be so many different things. It doesn't just have to be a person, right? Which often we do. We'll worship these people that come into our life. We'll, we'll kind of put them on a pedestal. That could happen in dating and marriage relationships, right? Or it could happen with children, it will lift them up, and it's kind of like the, the guy that lives their sports life through their kid, right? My kid's going to be the star, whatever, football player, yeah, you're, and that dad's trying to live that life through that kid. Really what's happening is they're exalting that kid, and they're, worse, they're bowing down to the God of the sport, because they want to see themselves in this shoe, right? When that happens, based on this statement, and of course we can find this multiple other places in Scripture, and the truth, obviously, in the Ten Commandments is, is that when we put other gods before God, 
we are going to be in a serious situation. And that serious situation obviously is, is if we're not believers, then the serious situation is, is that we go into Sheol, right? We, we experience hell for eternity. If we accept Christ, we are in Christ, and we still sin, which often, or I, would, I would venture to say that all sin really kind of finds its root in idolatry in some form or fashion. And that, I, that idol may be ourselves. Pride. So, Whatever that idol might be in your life, if you're pursuing idols of any kind, what we tend to do is that idol isn't enough. It's really not going to solve the situation for me. It's not going to give me the fullness of joy, the pleasantness of being in Christ. That's not going to happen with those gods. So what I tend to do is just like uh, when we are going to buy things, we see this in materialism, which would be idolatry, right? We, we always have to have the new thing. So we, we can't settle on that God because it never fulfills us. So what ultimately happens is we multiply our gods. We go find more gods and more gods. I was in the hospital recently, and there was a nurse taking care of me, and she uh, was commenting uh, on my wife and I and, and and having this conversation with her, and ultimately through that conversation, it, it came to be that her she sent her son to Christian school, and now he is a college student at Houston Baptist, and she is Hindi. And uh, she said, but this is great education. This is the kind of education I want for my kid. But if you know anything about the Hindu religion, which is like these multiple gods, they can just live in this thousand, literally thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of gods, right? So it's real easy to embrace a new one. And that's kind of how, as long as it provides my kid the success, then I'm, I'm good for it. Even though it contradicts the, the foundation of my religion, I'm willing to do that. So there's a principle here in that if we do those kinds of things, then we're laying our life down at the feet of a different God, and ultimately it will lead us to a poor place, right? So in verse 5, it goes on to show you the imagery of someone who does not do that. Because the psalmist acknowledged, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pursue other gods. It's a bad route. Sorrow follows them. Right? And it's suffering without a purpose. If you're going to suffer, suffer for a purpose. Right? And that's why you constantly hear, probably hear, struggle well. Struggle well for the glory of God. Don't just struggle well or struggle for something. Struggle for the glory of God. Put purpose in your struggle. And that's what this imagery shows. I'm going to put purpose in my struggle. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. He's my God. He's the one thing I cling to. And my cup, you hold my lot. 
So he is acknowledging and showing the imagery that the God that I'm going to follow is this God up here that I've mentioned at the beginning, the watcher of all mankind, the preserver of all mankind, the guardian of all mankind, who draws me into a humble life of repentance. Constantly repenting and acknowledging. And that's what David is doing here in the psalm. He's repenting and acknowledging that God is God and that he's not. And so we see that as he communicates. So in verse 6, it says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have beautiful inheritance. Look at that language. The lines here is... In, in, in a very similar way as it's talking about in the previous verse, chosen portion, cup, lot, all of this language is very similar. Lines, these are essentially, think of it like this. The metaphor, maybe that's the best imagery is you inherit some land and that land has property lines. So by design, by the inheritance When you inherit that land, it has with it certain boundaries, property lines. So that imagery of lines is essentially communicating that, that the lines have fallen, the boundary lines have fallen. I know where my inheritance is. And guess what? It's a beautiful place. It's a marvelous place. Can you see what's happening here is there's this constant buildup of joy, right? So as he's acknowledging, he's kind of painting this picture of what life is like, right? But then as he begins to maybe step into suffering, and we know that that's what Christ did, right, as he took on the cross for us, as he takes into that step, it's for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, So think of that kind of background, right? So when we're communicating something in the background, we have a reason why we're saying what we're saying or some foundational, you know, philosophical element that's really kind of governing why we're saying what we're saying. Think of it like this. When Christ, the better David, is saying this, It is in the imagery of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And then in the spirit of Christ, as though that completely grieves him, a man of sorrows, knowing what his portion is going to be, what his lot is going to be, what his cup is going to be, if this cup can be passed from me. Right, Knowing what that's going to be, he embraces it as a beautiful inheritance. So instead of a nice piece of property in Colorado on a nice river where I could go trout fishing all of the time, right? Um, this would be like the gift that's given to me is to be spat on and shamed and cussed at and stripped naked and nailed to a cross. That's your inheritance. Yay. Right? But in the mind of Christ, he says, it's a beautiful inheritance. 
It's a pleasant thing. Why? Because he had you in his mind. And he saw how his inheritance would provide for you a beautiful place. Wow. Right? So it goes on to say, uh, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. It's that security, right? Hey, if God is the guardian, is the provider, is the preserver, I'm in his hand. That means it doesn't matter what it physically looks like in my life. I know this, that when it all comes out in the end, it's going to be a beautiful inheritance. So it's constantly thinking about what is to come. And what is to come is not only this continual presence with God now, but in a moment of seeing face-to-face Jesus, right? So what is the counsel that gives us? Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, this is really interesting, the communion of the soul with God brings to it an inner spiritual wisdom, which is in still seasons is revealed to itself. So in moments in which I'm still, I may not understand what's going on in the hustle and bustle, but when I'm still and I'm in communion with God, I begin to understand why this inheritance is so important. And what can be said of David and the true David can be said of the sons and daughters of David because of the true David, you. So think of the lineage here. David, true David, you. Relates to all three categories. Okay? So it goes on to say in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Number two, my flesh also dwells secure. Number three, for you will not abandon my soul to shield. Number four, or let your holy one, a title for this individual, right? So number five, see corruption. So here, Peter and Paul actually cite this verse in their sermons. Peter, a sermon in chapter 2 of Acts where more than 3,000 people come to know the Lord as a result of that sermon, where he quotes this. That's a pretty incredible legacy for a psalm. Here's this sermon by Peter, right? Right after he kind of is taking his apostleship, stepping into that role, gives that so early in Acts, obviously, says this psalm, boom, 3,000 souls saved. Wow. People began to see their inheritance. And for the Jew, 
obviously, knowing about David and seeing their inheritance with David, it began to make sense. Oh, he's the true David. He is the Messiah. And I now began to see why he had to die. So let me finish this out. It goes on to say, you make known to me the path of life. Life is through Christ. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Where does our joy come from? Jesus. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 15, 10 through 11 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy. How do we get there? Uh, Deep phrase, I guess, would be covenant fidelity, which essentially means this, that we, our actions mimic what we're called to be. So God calls us into obedience and faithful living, names us as righteous and holy, and we're not that, right? And so what we do then is pursue that to become like that. We work out our salvation. Matthew 13, 44 says it this way as a spirit of what I'm shooting for here. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. Why did he buy the field? Because he found this incredible treasure that is on that property. And he knew that if he would give everything away in his life, those that follow me, take up their cross and follow me, will abandon everything. Remember Jesus saying that? To pursue the one true treasure. Sell everything, give it all away for the treasure. The treasure is Christ. The beautiful inheritance, the fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore is in Christ. And that is what this poem so beautifully communicates to us all through the work of the true David of Christ. Father God, thank you that your treasure of Christ can be our treasure, all because of your design that when you set in motion that the plan of salvation, the gospel, would happen, nothing could thwart it. That you, the guardian of mankind, would provide the gospel that would draw us into life and give us life and allow us to sing in a very similar way as David, that you are our portion. You are our cup. You are the lines that have been drawn in pleasant places, and you are the beautiful inheritance, and that you are the fullness of joy.
and pleasure forevermore. And may we glorify you with our life. God, guard our hearts. Help us not to pursue idols, but to pursue you and you alone. God, prepare our hearts for the service. Pray that you would be with Pat as he preaches and be with Blake as he leads. God, thank you for each person that's here. Those that aren't here, we pray that you would guard them and guide them and bring them back safely. And it's your name that we pray and worship Jesus. Amen.